Today's sermon comes from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 23, verses 23 through 29. Am I a God nearby, says the Lord, and not a God far off? Who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? I have heard what the prophets have said, who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long will the hearts of the prophets ever turn back? Those who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart, they plan to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another, just as their ancestors forgot my name for Baal. Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let the one who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat, says the Lord? Is not my word like fire, says the Lord, and a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? The word of the Lord. On the flight back from London to Hartsfield-Jackson, I had the pleasure of sitting next to somebody interesting. I don't always get that luck on planes, but this time I did. We talked for nearly nine hours straight. He was the professor or the head of the Department of Orchestral Studies at Florida State University. So we first began talking about music. I was able to tell him that I was a minister at a church that had quality music. Amen? You heard some today. Miss Keith, thank you very much for gracing us with your voice. But here's the thing. When you're a pastor on a plane, one of two things usually happens when others find out. They usually stop talking to you, or they start talking to you too much. He started talking to me a lot. He told me his parents were from Cuba, that he grew up Catholic, and then he said, I started having doubts in my faith. He asked me if I ever doubted. I do. But he said his doubts became stronger than the moments of conviction over time, and now he had very little faith. He told me he was spiritual but not religious. I smiled. And he said, you heard that one before. I said, oh, yeah. He says, what do you think about that? I said, well, it means that you still want to have connection to something more. He goes, you got it. You got it. And then he started telling me what he's been reading. And he reads really, really great books and wide and far books for a layperson. He'd read theologians and philosophers. But he pulled out a satchel and he showed me a book by a neuroscientist that I knew called Sam Harris. Sam Harris is one of the new so-called new atheists. He, with Hitchens and Dennett and Dawkins and all the rest, have kind of put a bunch of material out there that has been um, mainstream and talking about that there is no God. He said, what do you think about Sam Harris? I didn't want to be critical with a person I just met, so I said something kind. I said, I think Harris has a lot of great things to say about mindfulness and meditation, which he does. And then the conversation went on a little further, and at some point he got a little more comfortable, and he goes, so what's wrong with Harris? Why don't you agree with him about God? I said, no, I do agree with Sam Harris about God. And he looked at me like I was crazy. Here's a pastor, a theologian, who says that he agrees with an atheist about God. I said, yeah, absolutely. 
In fact, I would say that everything that Sam Harris is rejecting about God is something that I reject about God. Well, let me put it this way. The God that he keeps describing over and over and over again is not the God that I understand from the great tradition of Christianity. So yeah, if that's what we mean by God, I too reject it. I've had that same feeling these past two weeks. News stories have been coming out, I don't know if you've been following them, of several rather well-known evangelical popular leaders. One of them wrote the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, Joshua Harris. The other one, Marty Stanford, wrote a lot of Hillsong songs, a lot of these big worship songs that you hear in contemporary Christian uh, music these days. And both of those people have found uh, problems with God and decided to tell the community that they're no longer Christians. Firstly, I, I mourned their walking away. Secondly, I analyzed what they had to say, and I thought, by God, I agree. The gods that they are describing are not the God that I'm wanting to follow. And the faith groups they're describing don't describe well what faith group is supposed to follow Jesus Christ. I guess what I'm trying to tell you is the way we think about God matters. I'm tempted to tell you that theology matters, but I won't stand on that soapbox now. I just want to remind you that there are some really important questions, and the way we answer them, there's a lot riding on that. Questions like, who is God? Where is God? And what does God want from me? In our text today, we get to read in the middle of the great prophetic text of Jeremiah, but it's not Jeremiah's voice that we hear. It's actually the voice of God. And God is trying to remind his people of something that they've been overlooking for some time. It has to do with who he is and where he is. Before we go any further, though, I'd like us all to remember the social situation that Jeremiah finds himself in. Here is a prophet called by God to speak faithfully the word of God before during and after his nation falls. He witnesses the collapse of Jerusalem. This nation that he's a part of collapses. And so he's a broken-hearted prophet. He's broken-hearted because of the failure of the city and the nation, but he's broken-hearted also by the people's response. You see, God has been telling the people all through Jeremiah, this calamity won't befall you if only you do what I'm telling you to do. But instead, instead they yearn for, for something else. What do the people want in the midst of difficulty? They want to feel good. They want to be inspired by self Righteous, self-important messages. They want to have their cake and they want to eat it too. And there are more than enough prophets, so-called, hanging around the town that line up to tell them the things that they want to hear. They tell the people that they've been given dreams. God reminds us in this text that I haven't been giving people any dreams. He's charlatans are making up dreams. And so they go on telling the people what they want to hear. What's the first thing they tell them? 
Well, the first thing they tell them isn't really all that bad. It's the foundation that they build the bad stuff upon. The first thing they tell them is this, our God is better than their God. That's all throughout the scriptures. That's actually a decent notion. Fun fact, a lot of us believe that the ancient Jews were monotheists, not, not at some points. At this point, they were what the uh, modern religious scholars would call monolatrists. What that means is they took seriously the gods of other countries, the gods of other lands, the gods of other homes. They just thought that their one god was mightier and wiser and more loving. On that foundation of my God is better than your God, a lot of lies get built up like this. Our God only loves us. Israel first, Israel first, Israel first, and more. The mess we're in is not our fault. The mess we are in is not our fault. Professor Brennan Breed of nearby Columbia Theological Seminary is more precise when he describes the modus operandi of these charlatans, I mean, excuse me, prophets and their claims. He says this, this passage, Jeremiah 23, 23 through 29, issues a scathing denunciation to the state-sanctioned prophets who deliver a fake message designed to prop up a system that exploits the weak for the benefit of the powerful. The hyper-nationalistic assumptions of these prophets construct a false god who is consumed with the success of Davidic kings, kings and seems to care little for ethics, let alone those outside the borders of Judah. This false god allows the royal system to ignore the big picture end quote. It's a system that says it's only for us, but if we simply look at the page before in our Bible at Jeremiah 22, we hear from God what they could do to avoid calamity, and it's to practice what the Scriptures call true religion. Don't do anything to hurt the poor, the orphan, the widow. Don't do anything to harm the alien. In short, don't do things to harm those who are disenfranchised. Let them near the temple. Special note, buyer of religious rhetoric, beware. Be wary of the charlatan's message. It is seductive. Be wary of the Rasputins. There was once a televangelist who had a reputation for being able to heal people and to speak prophetically. People would show up to his gatherings by the thousands, and he would walk around with a microphone, and it was like a miracle. He'd look up, and he would call a name out of the air, and then he'd look up again, and he would call an ailment out of the air, and lo and behold, he would be calling out somebody in his assembly who had the ailment that he mentioned. They'd come forward. He would lay hands on them. Sometimes he would shake them. He'd often prophesy and then he would pronounce them healed. And there was a moment of ecstasy in the room. Sometimes people felt better in those moments. All the press was on the front end, not the back. That's why most of the people who kept showing up didn't know that these people weren't in fact healed. The FBI ran a sting on this 
evangelist and found out that he was doing something really clever. Here's how it went. When you'd show up to one of his healing moments or whatever they're called, you would stand in a narthex and you'd wait to come in. You'd get a little card and then it would say your name and your address and your phone number because they want to follow up with you. And then it would say, how can we pray for you? That's sweet, isn't it? How can our prayer team lift you up in prayer? I mean, there is nothing wrong with that except for what you would write down is the very thing you're there for. And you also didn't know that while he was parading around the room, his wife sat backstage with the microphone and he had a little transistor in his ear and he would read names. She would read names to him and ailments. Be careful. Be careful of those who are conjuring up their own dreams and not listening to God's. This is a hard scripture today. It's really picking on people like me. I mean, every week I have to ask myself this question, what am I supposed to tell the people of God? Maybe I should preach on this thing, or maybe I should preach on that thing. It behooves any preacher to consult someone else first than themselves, namely God. So I would do well, and so would you, to heed God's concerning language about who he is and where he is in this text. Look at the first line again, verse 23. Am I a God nearby, says the Lord, and not a God far off? What's he mean by that? He, he seems to be questioning the importance of being a God close. He's also saying, I'm also a God far off. You might be thinking, isn't part of the whole hope of Christianity that God has made himself close to us? Well, yes. I, I think there's something more going on here. We could ask the question that God is asking in another way. He might say something like this, am I really only a God local to you folk? Am I really a God of this little nation alone? Am I not also God of the universe? Am I not also God who can fill up all spaces and heavens? Am I also, am I not also God of all nations and peoples and homes? Or is God simply an ornamental etagere that you can take home and place on your shelf like an old porcelain urn to look at around dinner? St. Irenaeus of Lyon, St. Origen said, this passage says clearly that God is close, but it means God is the God of the cosmos. It means that all that is done and dreamt in this world is seen by God. God sees your deeds, good and bad. God knows your dreams. He knows the dreams of charlatans, too. God sees it all. No one escapes the gaze of God. There was once a Jewish rabbi who was translating the scriptures into a contemporary language. He knew a little funny thing about each and every one of us humans is that when we are comfortable with language, when we're comfortable with a known text, we tend to gloss it over. Sometimes texts that we're comfortable with lose their teeth because we just, we go on autopilot. And so he tried to put teeth back into it with his translation. When he would get to areas where he needed to translate our God, which is all throughout the Bible, right? Like our God reigns, 
our God loves us, our God is like a shepherd, and so on. He thought that maybe contemporary ears inflated the possessive element of that. You know, it's our God. Our God belongs to us, and we're the ones who possess God. So he translated it differently. He has the same grammatical meaning. It's clunkier, it's less poetic, but he started translating the bits of Scripture this way. The God of us. The God of us. I like that. It reminds me, I don't possess God, it reminds me that God possesses us. God is the God of us. And God is speaking to his audience here in Jeremiah, reminding them, am I only your God, or am I the God of us, the, human, the whole race of humans? Am I the God of all inside and outside of these walls? But what about those charlatans, excuse me, prophets, who are still profiting off the fears and comforts of the people? You know what God says about them? Let them keep talking. Talk, talk, talk. Let them keep talking. There was once a park with a basketball court, and on the court were some senior gentlemen playing a game. There's some younger gentlemen who were standing baseline. They really wanted to get on the court, and they thought the old guys, pardon me, had played enough. They had talked enough trash about the old guys that the old guys had an idea. They said, come over here. Why, why don't we play a game between each other? If you win, we give you the court. If we win, we keep the court. And so they said, that's a great deal. They let the young guys check the ball first, and they passed it from the uh, out-of-bounds to inbounds, and they put together a nice little play, and a young guy laid a layup and made the first basket. They started running their mouths. Talk, talk, talk. That was the last basket they made. The old guys started swatting shots. They started throwing behind passes behind their back. They started setting up real basketball plays. They score one right after the other. They'd steal the ball, score one right after the other. Young guys kept talk, talking, talking. My favorite part is one of the senior guys gets to the top of the arch and with a perfect form just swished a three-pointer. And by the time that ball hadn't touched the bottom of the net, that young guy still talking trash. The old guy said, keep talking, bud. Keep talking. God says of these false prophets, let them talk. Since I've been away, and, well, since I was in the hospital waiting for Max to arrive, I did a lot of watching of televangelists. Now, I don't want to paint them all with a broad brush. They're not all created equal. I checked in with my friends on TV. I also checked in on Facebook a lot. I saw a lot of your feeds too. And I flipped through all the four major news things. The false prophets are alive and well. There's a lot of talk. There's a lot of sweetening of the ears being done. There's a lot of manipulation it's still going. And God says, I'm going to let them chatter their way all the way into oblivion. He reminds Jeremiah and the people that God has a real word and he's giving it to the faithful. God's got a real bit of revelation and he's giving it to the people. 
And God's got a real teaching. He's giving it to the people. God's got a purpose to share. He's giving it to the people. And if the faithful bring it, friends, that word of God, the truth of God, will be like a refining fire that will sort through all the words. Again, this passage is terrifying for a person like me. It's tempting to get up and want to preach my opinions. I don't know if you noticed this, but I've got this wonderfully large marble pulpit to stand over you. It would be easy to think, what do I just want them to hear? And let's be honest, I would love to tell you this. This would make my life easier. If, you, if I could say this to you, I'm not saying it, okay? This is just a hypothetical. If I could say this, if you could promise me that you'd be in the pew three out of four Sundays, and if everyone in this room would up their tithe by 2%, then you're not going to have any problems. Then things will go well with you, or whatever the promise could be. Can't preach that. I'd like to. And on the hard topics, oh, the hard topics. It's real tempting to shy away from hard topics because I have what they call a low or high level of agreeability, which means that if someone's mad at me, someone doesn't like me, someone's critical, it really bothers me. So it's just easier just to just tell people the nice stuff. God loves you, and don't go there. This passage is calling for boldness based on something that we know about God. It's that God is the God of us. We're owned and possessed by God, and it's our pleasure to speak the word of God. This text is ultimately a reminder about thinking about God correctly. God is the God of us, all of us. Inside our borders and outside our borders, God is still God. God is inside my skin color and outside my skin color. God is inside my beliefs, and God is the God of those who still don't believe. God is the God of us. What would it mean for each of us to when we start looking at people, think first and foremost, God is the God of that person. It might mean that the most powerful appeal that we could make as a human race, or even in our own just nation's language, our most powerful appeal will no longer be my rights. Our most powerful appeals would be for the blessing and flourishing and care for other people.